Morning, everybody. It is uh, Family Worship Sunday, which means we uh, do our best to get our young people involved, and they did an amazing job this morning. Um, I did not speak a word in front of anyone in church until uh, my sophomore year of college, and then I threw up beforehand, so you guys are... uh, You guys are ahead of the curve there. I'm so grateful for all our young people. We've had a great weekend. Um, Yesterday we had a a very uh, encouraging crowd for our annual youth rally, and uh, Michael did a a great job behind the scenes organizing that. And just another huge thank you to all of the volunteers who worked so hard to make yesterday happen. It was a very encouraging day. Uh, A lot of us are wiped out because of it, but it was uh, was worth it, and it it was awesome. So... Just, I hope you will take time today to reflect on what a, a, an amazing blessing it is from God that there are little voices to contend with in this auditorium. I know sometimes people get a little grouchy and they don't want to hear kids make noise. I love the noise from our children because a church building that has no noise from children is an awful sad place to be in. And so uh, we had a, a group sitting with us this morning in our pew and it was, uh, it was making me pretty happy. Uh, so just thank you to God for all of our young people. Okay, everyone, we talked yesterday all day at our youth rally about the life of Peter, and we looked at several different stories from the life of Peter, and I want to continue that theme of of looking at Peter this morning as we talk about the foundation of what it is we believe as followers of Christ. I am very grateful that God placed me in a Christian home. I'm grateful for my parents, for the example they set for me, and I'm very grateful that In spite of the fact that there were a lot of Sundays growing up where I would much rather have been fishing or playing football or sleeping in, that they didn't give me that opportunity. But I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ, not because they forced me to go to church when I was younger. I'm a follower of Christ because I made the decision in my life to put him on in baptism and follow him. But that was a process coming to that decision. It took me a while to take a faith that my parents had lent me and make it my own and take ownership of my own discipleship. And along that journey, there were a lot of questions that I had, questions that I desperately wanted answers to. And I was thinking about them this week, and I just jotted a few of them down, and maybe some of you can relate. Maybe some of you young people are wrestling with some of these questions right now. Is the Bible from God? How do we know the answer to that question? Or is it just a random collection of stories that ended up in this book somehow? Is the Bible from God? When I read the Bible, are these actually the words of God? And are they authoritative in my life? Why are there so many churches out there? And what is the difference between all the churches? Is God pleased with all of the churches? Or is there a pattern that we should be following that gets us closer to what God's will is for us? Does it matter how we worship when we come together on Sunday mornings? Is there a difference between what God wants from boys and girls regarding what they do when we come together as a church? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? That one's bothered me for a long time. (laughs) What's the deal with dinosaurs and how does that fit into the timeline of the world and what we understand about how and when God made the world and parts of our own history that we might grapple with and have big questions about? Now, how many of those questions are important? Anybody? Yeah, all of them. All of them. Every single one of them are important. And I pray that God gives all of you the opportunity in your life to chase down those questions and to find answers that satisfy you to those questions. 
But there are certain questions that are bigger than all the other questions. They're kind of foundational questions. And one is, does God exist? That's a big question, right? That's maybe the question for a lot of people. And as we go about trying to bring others to faith, as we go about trying to convince the people we love in this life to become followers of Christ as we are, sometimes that's where we start. Most of our apologetic material is aimed at starting in that place. If I can just convince someone that God exists, then I can convince them that he made the world. Then I can convince them how old the world is. Then I can convince them that the Bible is from God. Then I can convince them that the Bible is authoritative and they need to pay attention to it. And we do all this convincing and then we land on this place where, okay, now after you've been convinced of all of that, can I convince you that Jesus is the Son of God? And I would like to suggest to you that there is another approach to all of this. That there is one question that answers every other question. It's the question. It's the big one. It's the question that if you survey the New Testament, the New Testament authors were trying to get people to answer this one question more than anything else. Did Jesus, in fact, raise from the dead? And I would suggest to you that you young people especially, all the questions you have, pursue them. But if you can answer this one question, every other question will be answered for you. Because if you come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ raised from the dead like the apostles preached, then you know for certain that he is who he claimed to be. Who did he claim to be? The Son of God. And if he is in fact the Son of God, then you can be certain of all kinds of things that we have questions about did the Bible come from God? Well, yes, because Jesus talked about it as if it came from God. And he told us that it was authoritative. Did God create the world? Yes, because Jesus told us he did. All of the questions that we want answers to are built on the foundation of this one question. We just had 1 Corinthians 15 read for us where Paul lays down the foundation of the gospel and he says, I'm going to tell you what I know, which is that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. He died. He was buried, and he rose from the dead. And if you believe that, then you are filled with hope. But if that's proven to be false, then we're hopeless. And in fact, those of us who have put our faith in Christ are the most pitiful people of all because we believed in a lie. Of course, Paul didn't think it was a lie. He was so convinced of it, he gave his life to that cause. And this room is filled with people who believe that one reality and it has shaped everything about who we are and what we do and what we believe and how we engage in the world around us. Did Jesus actually raise from the dead? We believe that. It's the foundation of everything about who we are. But why do we believe that? And this is for our young people specifically. How do you know that Jesus raised from the dead? What evidence can I give you that would make you logically conclude that this story is true? That a man 2,000 years ago was killed, put in a tomb, and when they went to find him, the door to the tomb was rolled away and his body was gone because he had raised from the dead. What would make us believe that that's true? And there's a lot of answers I can give to that question, but there's one specific answer I want to give to you this morning. One piece of evidence that for me, anyway, has been maybe more powerful than any other. And it's found in the life of Peter. So follow along with me, if you would. In John chapter 20, at the end of John's gospel in verses 28 and 29, and actually I'm going to read a little bit more than that. So if you want to turn over to John chapter 20, 
And we're going to pick up in verse 24. John chapter 20 and verse 24. Jesus has resurrected and he begins appearing to his disciples. Verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So he's appeared to the other disciples. They know that he's resurrected. Thomas has heard of this, but he hasn't seen it yet himself. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Now Thomas gets a bad rap, and we're hard on Thomas. But Thomas is just doing what humans logically do. If you tell them someone raised from the dead, your natural reaction is no, because that's not what people do. They die and they stay buried. In fact, as Peter is preaching the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 is where you can find that, he's talking about David and he says David died and he was buried and he stayed buried and you can go visit his tomb. Jesus, however, didn't stay dead. And so Thomas is just doing what people naturally do. They're skeptical of any kind of claim as absurd as someone raised from the dead. And so Jesus appears to him and he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. You want evidence, Thomas. Here is evidence. We talk about faith sometimes as if it's just a leap of faith. We use that term all the time. As if God has provided us no evidence for the things that he's asked us to believe. But nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture is filled with evidence. And as the apostles went about preaching the resurrected Lord, they used Scripture as evidence. They used storytelling as evidence. And more than anything, they used first-hand accounts as evidence. I'm telling you, this is true because I saw it. Imagine the witness that Thomas was after this when he could go around and say, I didn't just hear about the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. I saw him, I met him, I talked with him, and I touched his wounds. So this is the story of Thomas. But what I, wanted you to po- I want to point out to you is his reaction and then what John does with this story. So in verse 28, here's Thomas's reaction. My Lord and my God. And this is where I want to get people. This is where I hope you want people to arrive at. This statement of faith where I know now that you are the Son of God because I believe in the resurrection. Thomas had evidence provided to him and so he came to that conclusion. And it turned him into a person of faith. But listen to how John responds to all of this. Then Jesus, excuse me, Jesus, he says, Then Jesus told him in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's a nod to all of us in this room here who have not had the opportunity that Thomas had. We didn't get to see with our own eyes the resurrected Lord, and yet something has convinced us to put our faith in the story of this man. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you for having that kind of faith. But what would lead us to that faith? Why would we come to the same conclusion Thomas did, even though we weren't privy to the same opportunities he was? Even though you guys didn't get to see Jesus and touch him, why would you believe that he raised from the dead? And then John goes on and he says this in verses 30 through 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, I could have written a lot more about the things that Jesus did. 
He says, but these are written so that you may believe. We have four biographies of Jesus for us in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. What are they? They're stories about the life of Jesus. Are they biased? Absolutely, they're biased. They're not just trying to tell us interesting facts about a historical figure. You guys in school, maybe you've had to read biographies about historical figures before, right? President's Day is coming up, Lincoln's birthday. Maybe you'll learn a little bit about Abraham Lincoln. You can go to the library, check out some interesting books about Abraham Lincoln and come away thinking, wow, what an interesting and powerful man that he was. But the author of those books, they're just trying to share information with you. You want to know more about Lincoln? Here it is. John didn't write the gospel so that we might know more about Jesus. He wants us to believe something specific about Jesus. He's saying, these things I wrote that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Of course he's biased. He's telling us a story about his friend, but he wants us to believe that he is the resurrected Son of God. And so let's look at Peter then. Peter says something interesting here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. You notice one of the passages that the young guys read for us this morning was the beginning of 1 John. The very beginning of John's first epistle, he talks about what I'm going to tell you are those things that we've seen, that we've heard, and that we've touched with our hands. I am giving you an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, which is exactly what he told the apostles to do, Right? You remember in Acts chapter 1, when they're down one apostle because Judas in remorse had hanged himself? And Peter says, we've got to appoint somebody so that we have 12. One of the prerequisites is that they were eyewitnesses of everything Jesus did from the beginning of his ministry up to his resurrection. We don't need people to go and tell you what you heard. We want people to go and tell you what they saw. And John is talking about that. And Peter's talking about the same thing. Here in 2 Peter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make the whole thing up. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And here he's talking about, I think, the transfiguration. But he says, He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He's talking about just one event in Jesus' life, but he's saying, I'm telling you what I witnessed. We didn't fabricate this story. We saw it, and we're here to tell you about it. Okay, that's all well and good, but why should we believe the story that Peter is telling? Why should we believe these eyewitness accounts? How do we know that they didn't just make the whole thing up? Peter can say, I didn't make it up, but why should we believe him? And I think there's something in Peter's story that gives us evidence, and it's this. So Matthew chapter 26, this is one of the stories that we looked at yesterday as we looked at the life of Peter. In Matthew chapter 26, if you want to turn over there, we're going to read verses 69 through 75. Matthew 26, 69 through 75. As Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover with the disciples, he tells them in no uncertain terms that before that night is over, what's going to happen? They're all going to desert him. And Peter confidently says, no, everybody else might leave you, but what? I will never deny you. And then he goes so far as to say, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Peter is confident in his faith at that moment. 
At that moment, Peter is convinced that his faith is unshakable. But Peter's faith is about to crumble before his eyes because something happens that he's not prepared for, which is Jesus allows himself to be betrayed and arrested. And Peter's not ready for that. Peter's looking for a fight. But Jesus is looking to make a sacrifice. Peter doesn't understand all of that in the moment. He will come to understand it, but in that moment he doesn't get it. And now his faith is on shaky ground and he's not exactly sure what is happening. And so he doesn't just question his trust in Jesus. He denies that he ever met Jesus. I have no affiliation with this man. Listen to what he says. Now Peter was sitting in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this guy was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath this time. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. I swear to you, I don't know who Jesus is. That sounds a lot different than being willing to die for him, doesn't it? Something had shaken Peter. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter is left in shambles. And he goes outside and he weeps bitterly because he had just denied his Savior. He had done the very thing he thought he could never do. He had given up on his trust in Christ. Now we know the story of Peter doesn't end there. Yesterday Aaron did a great job talking to us about what happens in John chapter 21 where where Peter is able to reconcile with Jesus and Jesus mends Peter's broken heart and gives him purpose again. But what I want you to pay attention to is actually what happens in Acts. In Acts chapter 4. It's amazing to me the transformation we see in Peter's life. He goes from denying that he ever had anything to do with Jesus to having a very different message about Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, he boldly proclaims to this giant crowd in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost that he is the Lord and Savior, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, Before, he didn't want to be associated with Jesus at all, and now he's the leader of this new Jesus movement, proclaiming to everyone in Jerusalem that Jesus is the Messiah they were waiting for, and that they had killed him. What can account for that kind of change in Peter's life and commitment? But that's not all. You get over to Acts chapter 4 and follow along with me. Peter and John had healed a man that was lame, lame his entire life. And word of this begins to spread. And you can imagine the rumors swirling in Jerusalem. Hey, remember when they killed Jesus? Shouldn't that be the end of this thing? And yet, here's these two guys that were followers of Jesus doing the same things that Jesus did. Who can explain any of this to us? And in fact, it says in the text that nobody could deny the miracle that they saw. They were just trying to figure out how to put an end to it. Because for these Jewish authorities, they were convinced, hey, we killed Jesus, what should happen to his movement? Should have disappeared, right? You kill the leader and what happens to the body? The body dies. But that's not what happened. Here we've got these same guys preaching about Jesus. And so we get to Acts chapter 4 in verse 13. And this is what we find. Acts chapter 4 in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Now let me stop you for a second. When they saw the what of Peter and John? The courage. 
You ever paid attention to that one word before? When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they're looking at Peter and John and they're seeing a courageous follower of Christ in Peter. The same Peter who a few weeks earlier was saying, I swear I don't know the man. Yes, that Peter is now a courageous man and everybody is seeing his courage. They realized that they were unschooled, ordinary guys. And they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now this time Peter's not going to deny it. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing, what's this thing? This movement, this Jesus movement, to stop this thing uh, from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And you can just see the arrogance of these men, right? This is how sure they are in their own authority. How are we going to stop it? We're just going to tell them to stop. Of course, they're going to listen to us because we're in charge. Everybody listens to us. Well, everybody except Peter and John. Then they called them in again and commanded them, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. There, done, right? We've scared the wits out of them. They're going on their way. But Peter and John replied, this is the same Peter who swore he had never met Jesus. Same Peter, a few weeks later. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What did Peter see that changed him so foundationally? What did he see that turned him from the Peter who was swearing, I have no idea who Jesus is, to the Peter who's standing before the Sanhedrin saying, try and stop me. I can't. I can't stop telling you about the things that I have witnessed. What in the world could account for that kind of change in Peter's life? After further threats, they let them go, and they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Something has changed in Peter's life. We're not talking about a period of years. We're talking about a period of weeks where he went from, I don't know Jesus, to you can't stop me from telling people about Jesus. And he says why, because he had seen something. Now I want you to think about this Logically, go ahead and be critical of the story. What does Peter have to gain from fabricating a story about the resurrected Jesus? What would he gain from that? Well, let's survey Peter's life. We know what he gained, okay? Did Peter become rich and famous? No. Did Peter live a long and prosperous life? No. You know what happened to Peter? Early church tradition says that he was killed because of his faith. How? Crucified, upside down. Refused to die in the same manner of his Lord because he didn't think he was worthy. And so he requested that he be crucified, upside down. What could convince a man to do that? If Peter had made the story up, at some point he's going to bail on the lie, isn't he? When he starts to realize there's nothing really in this for me, he's going to bail. Or at the very least, at the point where his life starts to become in danger, of course he's going to bail on a story that he knows he made up. 
Remember, it's the same Peter who was willing to bail on Jesus when he was arrested in the garden. So why would he go to his own death for a story that he fabricated? The only way you can logically explain the change that happens in Peter's life is because Peter witnessed something so profound, so amazing, so beyond explanation that it changed everything about the person Peter was. What could that thing possibly be? Peter witnessed the resurrection of his Savior. Peter outran John to the tomb when Mary told him it was empty. And he looked in that tomb and there was nothing there except the face cloth. His his garments were wrapped up. No body. Because he had raised from the dead. And then Peter encountered the resurrected Savior. And that resurrected Savior told Peter three times, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Watch over my flock. I've got work for you to do, Peter. Listen, we're never going to be in the position Thomas was in. We're not granted that opportunity to feel the wounds of the resurrected body of Jesus. But there's a story contained in Scripture that's shared with us. That there was a group of people who believed so firmly that Jesus raised from the dead, that they were willing to give their lives for that story. And what's impressive about that is not that these people had always been fanatical followers of Jesus, but at one point they were so terrified to be associated with Him that they all scattered. And yet they came back together and now they are a a force that could not be stopped. Why? Because every one of them had seen the resurrected Jesus. And I'm telling you, If you, like Thomas, had been in that room and you had seen Jesus, after you had watched Him die on that cross, you saw Him with fresh wounds walking and talking and eating with you. What's that going to do to you? It's going to change everything about you. And if you had witnessed those things, do you think anybody could ever stop you from talking about those things that you had seen and heard? Anybody have that one relative who thinks they saw aliens? Do they like to talk about it? Yeah, they like to talk about it, right? They think they saw something so profound, and I'm sorry, you know, if some of you have been abducted in here, I apologize, I'm not trying to make fun of your experience, okay? I'm just saying, there are certain things in life that when you witness them, they're so profound, you can't stop talking about them. You ever had a... a, the time a man becomes a father for the first time, what do they want to talk about? What do they want to talk about? Sports? Nope. All the stuff they normally talk about? Nope. They got one thing on their mind. What is it? Do you guys know how amazing a baby is? Right? Well, yeah, there's been lots of babies in this world, right? But you just experienced it for the first time, and now nobody's going to stop you from talking about it. Peter experienced something He went from the Peter who said, I don't know Jesus, to the Peter who said, I can't stop talking about what I saw. And what he saw was an empty tomb. What he saw was the body of Jesus with fresh wounds, not laying on a slab, but alive and well. What he saw was a Jesus who in Acts chapter 1 ascended back to heaven right in front of their very eyes. And all the apostles are sitting there slack-jawed, staring up into heaven at this sight. And you remember an angel appears to him and says, what? What are you doing? He's going to come back. He's got work for you to do. You wait for the Spirit in Jerusalem. 
And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Witnesses of what? Witnesses of the resurrection. Because if you believe that Jesus raised from the dead, then you have an answer to every other question you've ever asked. And so, young people, I encourage you to ask this question. And don't stop until you are satisfied with an answer. Did Jesus raise from the dead? It is the question you have to answer. I believe he did. And there's a room full of people here who believe he did. Why? Because we're given evidence for that. And I hope you'll think about the life of Peter and what that says about the reality of the resurrected Jesus. It's not a, it's not a story. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's a historical fact that a man raised from the dead. And that man is now ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he rules with all authority. And he grants to us a promise that if we submit our lives to him, he has gone on to prepare a place for us. And when he comes back, it'll be to take us back to him so that we can live with him and his father forever. And if you've not grabbed a hold of that hope and that promise yet this morning, I hope you will. What can we do to serve you in your faith this morning? We're going to stand and we're going to sing one more song. If there's anything we can do for you, I encourage you to do a couple things. One, you can come forward as we're singing and let me know what it is that we can do for you. If you don't want to do that, grab me, grab one of our uh, elders afterwards. Uh, some of you were gone last week, so can we do this one more time now that most of you are here? Can you stand up if you are one of our shepherds this morning so people know who our shepherds are? Okay, here are our shepherds this morning. If you have a need from one of them, Seek those men out after service, and they will be glad to serve you. Let's all stand, and let's sing this last song. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. And it's higher than the mountains that I face. And it's stronger than the power of the it's constant in the trial and the change. This one thing remains. This one thing remains. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me.